a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Star Wars Lost Tribe of the Sith Number 5 Purgatory By John Jackson Miller Read by Decade Bird Publishing Chapter 1 3960 BBY Their afternoon began as it always had. The rake fell, gouging orderly grooves into the black mud. Lifting it for another pass, the wielder brought it down again, neatly bisecting the furrows. Orikatai watched from across the hedge. The young farmer went so slowly. The rake, an insubstantial marriage of hijabo shoots and flinty rocks, nonetheless parted the rich soil with ease. But Jelf of Marisota seemed to be in no hurry, at this, or anything else. How monotonous it must be, Ori thought. All day, every day, the man in the straw-brimmed hut tended his duties, with no place to go or friends to see. His homestead sat alone at a bend of the Marisota River, far from most centers of Sith culture on Kesh. Nothing existed upstream but volcanoes and jungle, nothing downriver but the ghost towns of the Ragnos Lakes. It was no life for a human. Lady Oriel. Jelf said, doffing the hat. Sandy hair hung in a long braid outside the collar of his soaked blouse. Just Ori, she said. I've told you a dozen times. And that means a dozen visits. He said in that strange accent of his. I'm honored. The slender, auburn-haired woman strolled along the hedge, casting sidelong glances at the workmen. She didn't have any reason to hide why she still came here, not with her family's future about to be assured. Ori could do what she wanted. And yet, as she stepped through the opening onto the gravel path, she felt meek and fifteen again. Not a Sith saber of the tribe, a decade older. Her brown eyes trained on the ground, she chuckled to herself. There was no reason for modesty. Ori wore the black uniform of her office. Jelf wore rags. She'd passed the tests of apprenticeship on the grounds of the palace, along the glorious promenade walked by Grand Lord Corsin more than a millennium earlier. Jelf's home was a hovel, his holding less a farm than a depot for the fertilized soils he provided the gardeners of the cities. And yet the man had something she'd never encountered in another human, he had nothing to prove. No one ever looked directly at her in Tav. Not really. People always had one eye on what the conversation could mean for them, on how her mother could help them. Jelf had no thoughts of advancement. What good would such thoughts be to a slave? Setting down the rake, Jelf stepped from the mud and pulled a towel from his belt. I know why you're here. He said, wiping his hands. But not why you're here today. What's the big occasion this time? Danellan's day. Jelf looked blankly at her. That one of your Sith holidays? Ori tilted her head as she followed him around the hut. You were Sith once, too, you know. That's what they tell me. He said, pitching the towel away. It landed in a bucket on the ground, out of his sight. I'm afraid we don't cultivate much ancestral memory out in the hinterlands. Ori smiled. He was so learned, for a lesser. Jelf cultivated plenty, out of sight of the trail where she'd left her uvac to graze until she was ready to fly again. Behind the house, past the small mountains of river clay he traded with the Keshiri, he kept six trellises of the most beautiful dalsa flowers she'd ever seen. Like the hut and rake, the trellises were made from lashed-together hijabo shoots, and yet they made for a display that rivaled the horticultural wonders of the high seat. Here, behind a slave's quarters in the middle of nowhere. Taking the crystal blade she offered, the hazel-eyed farmer started cutting the specimens she selected. As usual, they'd decorate the urns on her mother's balcony at the revels. So your event. What is it? Pausing, he looked down at her. If you want to tell me, that is. Nidar Corsin's firstborn was born a thousand years ago tomorrow. Oh. Jelf said, trimming. 
Did he become Grand Lord or something? She smirked. Oh, no. The reign of Nidal Corsin had initiated a robust, glorious age for the Sith, she explained. Danellan knew that his father, the Lord Consort, would be put to death on Nidal's passing. That was in Yaru Corsin's will. But he'd waited too long to make his move. Nidal's only son had died an old man, waiting for his chance to rise to power. It was the end of a dynastic system, following his passing, Airless Nida had instituted succession based on merit. So this guy failed, and he has his own day? The Sith liked the message of Danellan's story, she told him. Many Sith were patient about engineering their ascensions, but it was possible to be too patient. Danellan's day is also called the Day of the Dispossessed. And think about it, she said, admiring his muscled arms through the slit sleeves. Has the tribe ever really needed a cause for a celebration? He laughed once, a throaty chuckle that made Ori smile. No, I guess not. At least it keeps people in my line of work busy. The seven high lords were always trying to outdo one another in decorating their boxes at the games. Taking the design of her mother's booth into her own hands eight months earlier, Ori had learned about Jelf and his secret garden from one of the Keshiri florists of Tav if indirectly. Sensing a lie when the Keshiri claimed that the flowers were his own, Ori followed him on her Yuvak one day. The flying beasts still forbidden to the Keshiri, the florist had travelled on foot to meet a caravan of carts bringing fertilizer from the Marisota. She found Jelf, and had found him again many times since, except when he was away on his raft, up in the jungle. The jungle. Ori looked over the trellis to the green hills, climbing away to the smoldering peaks of the east. Even the tribe didn't go up into that tangle of underbrush and overhanging foliage. No sane person should go there. Jelf had said. But what he brought back on his little barge was the secret to his horticultural success, and the successes of all his customers along the line. By the time the runoff comes downstream. He'd explained once, digging his hands into a mound of soil. A lot of the nutrients are gone. Ori had lain awake nights imagining the man waist-deep in a dark mountain stream, shoveling muck into his flatboat. Silliness. A hedonistic excess. But she was Sith, wasn't she? Who else should she please? Kneeling, he arranged the cuttings neatly upon a cloth draped across the ground. Large, dirt-stained hands worked with surprising gentleness, prying away the buds that had come to nothing. Jelf looked at her keenly. You know, I can give you the names of my customers closer to Tav. They're growing their plants in the same dirt. Yours are better, she said. That much was true. Perhaps the flowers simply grew better in air closer to their native soil. Maybe it was the workmanship of a human, rather than a keshiri. Or maybe it was this human. When she'd met him, she'd imagined Jelf had only recently become a slave. No laborer she'd met, human or Keshiri, had his vocabulary. He must have been someone before, back in the Sith cities. But he'd answered without hesitation. I'm nobody. I never knew anybody, before you. He'd been born into slavery, and there he'd stay. He, and whatever children he might ever have. The human slave class had developed soon after the Corsin line ended. While many of Omen's descendants were force-sensitive, those who weren't had formed their own layer of society beneath those who served the Grand Lord. Free members of the tribe, this yeomanry helped to keep the Kashiri, who stood at the very bottom, productive. But when any Sith citizen stood condemned by a lord, birthright could be lost forever. Jelf of Marasota had no surname because his father had none to give. He was better than a Keshiri, she'd never let one of the purple-skinned serfs call her by her first name, but only because he was human, not because he was Sith. Jelf owed fealty and service to the Sith, should they want it, but only Ori had ever prevailed upon him directly for anything. Such a waste, she thought, admiring both worker and workmanship. You know, my mother's a high lord. You've mentioned it. She's powerful, but the traditions are so strong, she said. 
It's a shame there isn't some kind of path for you to get back in. I never was in. And what would I do in Tarv? I'd hardly fit with your beautiful people. Looking up at her, he winked. In the sunlight, she could see the long, ruddy scar running from his right cheek down his neck. She'd sometimes imagined it as being from some great battle, rather than some farm accident, years ago. But he was right. Even if he had his name, his disfigurement would make him an ill fit for the tribe. Jelf stood abruptly. You are going to roll those up, she said, eyes darting between him and the flowers. Actually, I have something for you. He said, pointing a thumb behind him. In honor of your day of dispossession. That's dispossessed. Begging your pardon. He led her farther into the farm than she'd been before, past the mounds to a structure she'd seen only from the sky. Situated near the riverbank, the hut was larger than his dwelling and twice the height. Ori blanched. What's back there? It stinks. Manu usually does. You vac are pretty rank. He said, approaching the barred door. Once a stable for a previous occupant who could own Uvac, now it provided him a wind-free place to store the loads of dung he needed for mixing his soil. You don't want to be around when I have that stuff carted in. He opened the door. Surely this isn't your gift to me, she said, squinting and covering her nose. Surely not. He reached inside the doorway to retrieve a strange-looking yoke. It's something I was working on. I lengthened some water skins and attached them to part of an UVAC harness. Balancing the center straps on his hands, he showed her how the long pouches hung to either side. You've always had to fly the Dalsars back in a moist cloth. With these, you can carry them straight, and you won't be soaked when you get home. Ori opened her eyes wide, even as he shut the door to the rancid place. You made that for me. Jelf looked around. Hum. I don't see the Grand Lord here today, so, sure. I guess it's for you. They walked back along the riverside, past the little flatboat tied at the bank. Returning from its grazing, Shin, Ori's Uvac, flew in from above and settled in a clearing. Jelf strode assuredly toward the animal and lifted the yoke over its leathery frame. A perfect fit. Shin, who took to no one, nodded passively. This is why I come here, Ori thought. Life at court was cutthroat, this month, more than most times. But so many were motivated not by lust for power, but by fear of losing what power they had. This man had nothing and feared nothing. Her mother had given it a name, the confidence of the dead end. Jelf partially filled the skins with water and then deposited the clippings inside. Shin looked like a parade animal now, festooned with flowers. That might be an idea for some time, Ori thought, but not for tomorrow. She watched as he fastened the tops to protect the blossoms. There. Fit for the Grand Lord. He helped her aboard the Uvac. Jelf, she said, looking down. With what you can do, you really ought to be teaching the Keshiri how to grow things. Not selling them dirt. Careful. He said, gesturing toward the composting barn. My life's in that dirt. He patted Shin's long face and turned toward his flatboat, bobbing in the water. And I may not be of the tribe, but at least I've got a ship. He laughed. Such as it is. Chapter 2 The Sith did have a ship, Ori knew, but she'd never seen it. No one alive had. One of Yaru Korsin's last acts was to remove everyone from the lofty retreat to Tav, where the newcomers could expand their numbers and reach. Aerial sentries perpetually protected the holy and forbidden temple from violators, Sith and otherwise. But the mountain was always visible over Tav's now useless protective walls, a reminder of their stellar origins. Ori could see the peak clearly from her mother's new luxury compartment in the Corsinata. Multiple stadium decks rose over a pentagonal playing field, with the Grand Lord's section highest of all. Just that morning, Ori's mother had been awarded a coveted section in the stadium near the Grand Lord, whose balcony always faced the temple. Closer to the stars, 
Ori said under her breath. We're moving up. She studied the horizon. There, kilometers away, Omen sat in its protective building, waiting for the day when the Sith came for their lost tribe. But no one had come, and few explanations for why were attractive. The legendary Sith Lord Nogasada would have found them by now, had he won his war. If the Sith and Jedi had wiped each other out, no one might ever come. And what if the Jedi had won? As she had on the farm, Ori blanched just to think of it. She knew what Jedi were only from her teachers, who'd kept the story alive. Ori knew enough to hate the Jedi and everything they stood for. Weakness. Pity. Self-denial. Discovery by Jedi would be a cruel fate, indeed. But the worst thing about the passage of time had been the realization that, in their attempts to get off-world, those same pioneers of legend from a millennium earlier had squandered most of the resources that could have helped the tribe now. Plenty of lignin crystals from Omen's hold circulated, but they were good for lightsabers and little else. And any understanding of how Omen worked had faded, it was now the province of scholars who no longer had access to the vessel. Only the Grand Lord could reverse Corson's ban and return the tribe's ice to space. It wouldn't be this Grand Lord, the biggest nothing ever to hold the position. Ori seethed as she looked across to the withered crone in her ornately decorated stall. Lilia then rocked in her throne, her palsied hand moving completely out of time with the tempo of the musicians playing below. Grand Lord Ven had been a compromise candidate a year earlier, when the other six High Lords had been unable to agree on a new leader. The oldest High Lord by twenty years, Ven was past fearing, no one had imagined she would last. The rival political parties, distinguished by the red and gold sashes they wore, swore fealty to the woman while continuing to plot their next steps. This Grand Lord was a corpse in waiting. Don't forget to salute, darling. Ori looked back into the dark eyes of Kandra Kitai. Vibrant for her fifty years, the newest High Lord approached the railing, turned primly toward the royal booth, and bowed. When the Grand Lord did not respond, Kandra's face drew so tight Ori feared it might crack wide open. Easy, Mom, Ori said. Like you told me, it's our big day. Months earlier, Ori's mother had taken Ven's place among the seven High Lords, instantly becoming the second most important person in the tribe. By keeping her preferences regarding the rival factions private, Kandra had become the tiebreaker, the one ultimately to select the aged leader's successor. Recognizing Kandra's new importance, Ven had given her the section nearby, in range of even her feeble eyes. If treated well, Kandra could keep the other High Lord stalemated indefinitely, fending off all challenges. And then? Who knows, Ori thought. By next Janellen's day, we might be in the royal box. Her own rivals among the Sabre leadership, the Luzo brothers, flanked the Grand Lord. The barrel-chested pair glared back at Ori, barely concealing their disdain. Probably annoyed, she thought, because this was the one moment when they wouldn't be able to sabotage her. They'd been watching her for months, eager to profit from any slip. With any luck, the end of Ven would be the end of the Luzos, too. Easy, dear. Kandra prompted, catching her thought. We're all friends today. The newest High Lord turned and nodded to the leaders of the two rival factions, seated in their customary red and gold boxes. High Lords Dernaz and Paulima were as important to her as the Grand Lord was, and she, to them. Friends. Right. Ori rolled her eyes. But our booth looks lovely. A fine job, again. Reminded, Ori turned her gaze to something more pleasing, the Dalsa flowers, fresh and vibrant on the balcony. Jelf of Marisota might never appear here, but at least some part of him had made the trip. Thunder came from below. Ori looked down to see the riders, wearing the ancient garb of Nidarkorsin's Skyborn Rangers, entering the field with their crippled Uvac. Harshest of all blood sports on Kesh, rake riding even began with gore. The wing muscles of Uvac hatchlings were cut, permanently grounding them while preserving some range of movement. With glass prongs screwed into their tough wing edges, 
the fully grown creatures stalked around, their flopping wings transformed into dangerous weapons. Squinting, Ori tried to identify the riders. Dernars and his reds had their favorites out there, as did Paulima and the golds. Vent had two entries, promoted by the Lizo brothers. The last to enter the field, however, was the one Ori cared about, Campion Day, Uvac Wrangler from the Southlands that Kandra represented. Day saluted Ori and her mother. He'll do well, I think, Ori commented. He'll die. Kandra said. Ori looked back, surprised. Kandra settled into her comfortable chair, indifferent to the drums beating below. Searching her mother's face, Ori realized the truth. These sporting events were always succession struggles by proxy. The rival factions might try to win Kandra's favor by allowing her entry to win, but the newest High Lord wasn't going to agitate Grand Lord Ven. Not today. We're going to have to win sometime, Ori grumbled. Not today. Kandra said. Campion Day was as good as dead. The shell horn sounding, the field dissolved immediately into a cloud of dust and blood. There was no strategy to rake riding, no posturing. The riders had their lightsabers, but anyone with sense minded the reins and nothing else. Like any saber, Ori loved a good fight, but this was nothing more than a brawl with animals, titans, lurching about, ripping into one another. And her family's entry was simply there to dress the place, no better than the flowers in the neck. All eyes turned to Campion Day, whose Uvac reared back suddenly on its clawed feet. It charged ahead, razor-tipped wings outstretched. But instead of goring the opponent stumbling haplessly before it, the creature leapt and flew. Wings that shouldn't work pumped mightily, allowing Uvac and Ryder to bound from the melee toward the grandstands. Day, standing in his saddle, raised his red lightsaber and screamed something Ori couldn't hear. He was in control, all right. Lighting her own weapon, Ori leapt atop the railing, ready to pounce if he came near. But the lumbering behemoth passed to the left, awkwardly clawing its way upward through the panicked crowd toward the Grand Lord's luxury compartment, above. Ori saw Lilia then stand, unflinching, as the attacker scaled the stone bleachers toward her. Raising her shaking hands, the Grand Lord unleashed a torrent of dark side energy. Blue fire crackling all along its wingspan, the surprised animal fell backward onto the lower seating, throwing its rider free. The Luzos leapt from the royal box, their own weapons red blurs as they plunged toward the would-be assassin. Mother, get back! Ori yelled. Across the way, Kashiri aid closed the shutters to the Grand Lord's compartment. Ori now did the same, knocking over large vases of Jelf's flowers in the process. She turned back to see her mother, staggering, paralyzed before the spectacle. What happened, mother? They'd known Campion Day for years, supporting his training. What could have caused his mad act? Kandra simply shook her head, blood draining from a face that had looked youthful only moments before. You, you'd better go, Ori. The other sabers are dealing with Day, Ori said, guarding the entrance to the compartment. That's not what I mean. Ori looked at her mother, stunned. We didn't do this. We don't have anything to worry about. Do we? She took the older woman's arm. Mother, do we? Summoning some unseen reserve of calm, Kandra straightened. I don't know what just happened. But I will know one way or another. She stepped past her daughter and opened the door. Outside, Sith and Kashiri dashed madly down the Corsinata's exterior ramps. Mother! Kandra looked back with sad eyes. I can't talk now, Ori. Just get to the estate and make sure the slaves know I won't be coming home tonight. She disappeared into the crowd. A star fell harmlessly from the sky. Landing on a hill, it provided light through the night, causing the gardens of Kesh to flourish as never before. Until it rose again, setting everything afire. 
The stones of Ori's home fell to dust before the hot wind, exposing her to the inferno. Charred and dying, she chased the star into the jungle to ask why it had destroyed her world. It answered. Because you thought me a friend. Ori had experienced the Force Vision during her second day as a Tyro, the lowest level in the tribe's hierarchy. It had never meant anything to her. But arriving at Starfall, her mother's country estate south of Tav, she'd had occasion to remember it. A procession of Keshiri Laboris was exiting the marbled mansion, carrying belongings to a pyre on the lawn. Her Laboris. Her belongings. Leaving Shin by the columns lining the front walk, Ori ran toward the bonfire. Drawing her lightsaber. She charged the frail purple figure directing the work, her mother's caretaker. What's going on? Ori grabbed the man. Who told you to do this? Recognizing his mistress's daughter, the Kishiri looked furtively to either side before touching Ori's wrist. He spoke in a low whisper. This was ordered by the Grand Lord herself, milady. Just a couple of hours ago. A couple of hours ago? Ori shook her head. The assassination attempt had only been two hours earlier. How was any of this possible? The caretaker gestured to the main entrance. There, two apprentices of the Luzo brothers stood in the grand doorway, watching the furniture-laden workers pass. They hadn't noticed her yet, Ori saw, but she'd changed that. Ori took a step toward the house. Clutching at her arm, the old man yanked Ori back. There are more of them inside. He said, pulling her behind the fire and out of their view. They are taking your mother's things, too. Is she still a high lord? Ori asked. The caretaker looked down. Another thought struck her. Am I still a saber? Suddenly sickened, Ori staggered closer to the flames and tried to remember what she'd heard and seen on the way out of the Corsonata. There had been so much chaos. With Campion Day killed seconds after his failed attack, rumors were attributing his act everywhere. The Red Faction claimed her mother had made a dire pact with the Golds, and vice versa. Some claimed Ven had died in her box, succumbing to her exertions and the excitement, others reported seeing the executions of High Lords Dernars and Paulima, right in their boxes at the arena. None of it made sense. The only thing all agreed on was who brought the assassin into the stadium to begin with, the Kitai family. She had to get back to Tav and speak to her loyal apprentices with access to the high seat. Defenders of her family's interests, they would know what was going on now. It was important not to succumb to anger over the bonfire, an obvious attempt by the Grand Lord's camp to provoke a reaction and reveal disloyalty. Looking toward the mansion, she smirked. Kandra Kitai's political skills were unparalleled. By now, she'd have successfully deflected blame and figured out who the victors were. By the time Ori reached Tav, Kandra would likely be sitting at the right hand of whoever had won out. Now was no time to fall into a clumsy trap set by the Luzos. This will be straightened out, she told the caretaker, turning toward her Yuvak. Goodbye, Ori. Climbing atop Shin, Ori took the reins in hand. Suddenly she stopped, calling after the retreating Keshiri elder. Wait. You called me Ori. The Keshiri looked down and wandered away. By the dark side, she thought. Anything but that. Jelf tipped the wobbly cart backward, allowing another pile of soil to spill into the trough. As summer went on, the mounds would dry out, becoming more acidic, an alkaline wash tended to refortify the stockpiles. His Keshiri customers didn't know about hydrogen ions, but they were particular nonetheless. Hearing a sound, Jelf dropped his trowel and stepped around the hut. There, in the waning rays of evening, stood his visitor from the day before, facing her Uvac and gripping the bridle. I'm surprised to see you, Jelf said, approaching her from behind. Nothing wrong with the Dalsars, I hope? Turning, she released the harness. The brilliant brown eyes were full of hurt and anger. I've been condemned. Ori of Tav said. I'm a slave. Chapter 3 
Jelf poured more of the gritty mixture into her bowl. A cashiri pauper's dish, the tasteless cereal became something else in his hands, seasoned with spices from his garden and the tiniest morsels of salted meat. Ori didn't know what animal it came from, but now she devoured the meal hungrily. Two days of prideful restraint had been enough. It was still so strange to see him, here, outside the fields. Each of the past two mornings, he had risen before sunrise, beginning his chores early to have more time for her. He washed in the river before she rose. When it was her turn, he retreated to the corner of the hut that served as his kitchen to preserve her modesty. Ori didn't think she had any, but again, that strange meekness crept in. He was no Kashiri plaything, but a human, even if he was a slave. As she was. For some reason, she hadn't told him anything that first night. There was so little he could do, and it was all so far beyond his frame of reference. She'd sat in silence in the doorway of the hut, watching for nothing until she collapsed. She'd awakened the next morning inside, on the bed of straw he used himself. She had no idea where he'd slept that night, if he'd slept at all. The second evening, after an untouched dinner, she'd let it all spill out, everything she'd learned in her trip to Tav. The leaders of the two factions that could never agree on a grand lord had indeed fallen to their elderly compromise candidate. The event had given her minions cause to decapitate, literally, the leaderships of the red and gold factions. Ori's mother still lived, her sources assured her, though in the clutches of the vengeful Ven. It was too late for Kandra to save her career, but she might yet save her life, if she said the right things about the right people. Like Danellen, Kandra had waited too long to choose a side and to put herself forward as a successor. A year had seemed like so little time to be a high lord. But for Ven, whose every breath was a miracle, the need to outlive her rivals was paramount. On learning that she'd been condemned to slavery, Ori had dashed to her hidden Uvac and flown immediately to the only safe place she knew. After a long moment's hesitation, Jelf had welcomed her, although he'd been less sure of what to do with Shin. As slaves, neither of them could own a Uvac. Remembering the composting barn that had once served as a stable, Ori had urged him to hide the creature there, behind the stalls storing manure. Initially uncertain, Jelf had relented under her pressure. Already feeling sick, she'd heaved as soon as the door to the vile place was opened. She did it again the second night, after relating the full tale of her tiny but important family's downfall. Jelf had been caring and helpful those times, with his cool river water and washrags handy. Now, in the twilight of the third evening, she was really testing the limits of his hospitality. Feeling better, she'd spent the entire day stamping around the farm, going over the events in her mind and plotting her family's return to power, even if the family now was just her. At supper, she tested both his knowledge and his patience. I don't understand. Jelf said, scraping the bottom of the Aroho shell bow. I thought the tribe expected people to want each other's jobs. Yes, yes, Ori said, cross-legged on the floor. But we don't kill to take them. We kill to keep them. There's a distinction? Ori dropped her empty bowl to the floor of the hut. Some dining table, she thought. You really don't know anything about your people, do you? The tribe is a meritocracy. Whoever's best at a job can have it, provided that a public challenge is made. Dernos never made a public challenge to the Grand Lord. Neither did Paulima. Nor did your mother. He offered, kneeling to retrieve her bowl. He looked slightly startled when she used the force to levitate it into his hand. Thanks. Look, it's really simple, she said, standing and making a futile effort to brush the dirt from her uniform. If you get to your rivals before they're ready, you can do anything you want, including assassination. His brow furrowed as he looked up at her. It sounds like a bloodbath. Normally we keep it low-key, for order's sake. Poisonings. A shaker blade in the gut. For order's sake. She stood in the doorway and glared. Are you going to criticize, or are you going to help me? I'm sorry. 
Jelf said, rising. I didn't mean to upset you. He shook his head. It's just that the thought of having rules for this sort of thing seems, well, odd. There are rules for breaking the rules. Ori walked to the bank and looked west. The sun appeared to be sinking into the river itself, setting the water ablaze with orange. It was a beautiful place, and she'd fantasized about stolen nights here before. But this wasn't what she had imagined at all. She wasn't going to be able to plot her return from this place. And she'd need more help than a strapping farmhand. I have to go back, she said. My mother was framed. Whoever did this to us will pay, and I'll have my name back. She looked back at him, gnawing on a stalk of something he'd pulled from the ground. I have to go back. I wouldn't do that. He said, joining her at the riverside. I suspect your grand lord did all of this herself. Ori looked at him, amazed. What would you know about it? Not much, I'll grant you. Jelf said, chewing. But if your mother was the key to selecting Ven's replacement, I could see the old woman wanting her out of the way. Incredulous, Ori looked into the growing shadows. Stick to fertilizer, Jelf. Look at it this way. He said, edging into her field of view. If Ven didn't stage the assassination and really suspected your mother, you wouldn't have been condemned. You'd be dead. But the Grand Lord doesn't have to kill you because she knows you didn't do anything. You're more useful as an example. He tossed the stick into the river. By making slaves out of a High Lord and her family, she's got living, breathing deterrence in front of people for as long as you live. Ori looked at him, stunned. It made sense. Dernaz and Paulima had died out of public view. The bonfire at the estate had attracted the attentions of humans and Keshiri alike. If she had stayed in Tav, she might already be at work, doing hard labor in full public view. So what do I do? He smiled, softly, his scar invisible now. Well, I don't know. But it strikes me that, as long as you still don't sense your mother suffering through your force, the way to thwart Ven is not to be an example. He didn't say the rest, but she heard it. The way not to be an example is not to be there. She looked up into his eyes, reflecting the starlight hitting the water. How does a farmer know about these things? You've seen my job. He said, putting a hand on her shoulder. I deal with a lot of things that stink. She laughed, despite herself, for the first time since she arrived. As she took a step away from the river in the darkness, her footing faltered in the soft ground. He caught her. She let him. Standing in the doorway of the hut after midnight, Jelf looked in at her sleeping form on the straw bed. It had been wrong to let Ori stay this long, he thought, and certainly wrong to let things go as far as they had in the last nine days. But then, it had been wrong to encourage her visits to begin with. Stepping outside, he tightened his tattered robe. After so many sultry days, there was an unseasonable chill in the air tonight. It matched his mood. Ori's presence put everything in jeopardy, in ways she could never imagine. So much more was at stake than the fortunes of one Sith family. And yet, he'd taken her in. It was a different Orikitai that had come to see him, one he couldn't resist. She'd seemed so proud on her earlier visits, full of the noxious entitlement of her people, certain of both her status and herself. With the loss of one, the other had gone. He'd seen the person underneath, tentative and unsure. As angry as she still was over what had happened, she was also sad over the loss of a vision she had once had of herself. And lately, sadness had been winning out, her days limited to walks from his hut to the garden. Humility in a Sith. It was an amazing thing to witness, an impossibility. Her armor melted down, the impurities seemed to boil away. Was it possible that not every Sith on Kesh was born venal? Her anger over being dispossessed seemed no more than normal. No more than how he would feel, and had felt, in similar situations. It wasn't the kind of fury that destroyed civilizations for sport. It wasn't Sith. It struck him as wrong that the greatest misfortune in Ori's life had only made her more attractive to him. The reserve he'd worked to develop had fallen away after that night on the riverbank. She had needed him, and it had been so long since anyone had. 
there wasn't much market for nonentities in the wilds or anywhere else. But the risk was always there, accompanying the happiness. He looked to the north. A faint streak of light nestled between the clouds and the hills. The aurora was beginning again. In a couple of nights, the northern sky would be afire. It would soon be time. Casting a glance to the storehouse, he calculated how long he'd have to be away from the farm. It wasn't safe to have her wandering around in his absence. She would have to go. But he couldn't let her leave. Chapter 4 He had left at daybreak, long hijabo pole in hand to push his craft upriver. Her tranquility broken, Ori had issued a stream of protests. What did it matter what his customers needed for the autumn growing season? What did he owe those people? All he got for his work was a few items that he couldn't coax out of the ground. But Jelf had kept looking to the jungle highlands, and to the sky. He'd claimed he had more responsibilities than she knew. Ori had scoffed, longer and louder than she'd intended. That worried her, now, bringing back two of the snares he'd set for the rodents at the edge of the forest. Jelf hadn't gone away mad, but he had gone away, despite her entreaties. She didn't like it. He'd been the balm she needed, making all of the heartache go away. She'd been dependent on her mother's office for so much in life that it had been seductively easy to put her existence in his hands. But his leaving had reminded her that he could refuse her. She had power over no one. And she couldn't live without him. Without Jelf, there was no one else at all. No one but Shin. Up ahead, Ori spied the rear door to the composting barn, cracked open to permit circulation. Not even a Uvac should have to live in that place, even if the stench came from its kind. Taking a deep breath, she approached. It had taken her most of the day to check and clear the traps, yielding a few of the varmints that Jelf used to supplement his diet. Wretched. At least seeing the Uvac reminded her that she still had some freedom, some chance to... Ori's eyes narrowed. Something in the force had changed. Dropping the traps, she ran to the barn and threw open the rickety door. Shin was dead. The great beast lay bleeding on the dirt floor, deep gashes burned into its long golden neck. Immediately recognizing the wounds, Ori ignited her lightsaber and scanned the building. Jelf! Jelf, are you here? Except for a few tools lining the wall, nothing was in here, save the giant mound of filth near the front. I told you we'd find her here. Came a young male voice from outside. Just follow the stench. Ori emerged, weapon held high. The Lizo brothers, her nemeses in the Saber Corps, stood out in front before Uvac mounts of their own. Flen, the elder, smirked. Stench of failure, you mean? You looking to die, Luzo? She stepped forward, unafraid. The pair didn't move. Sorge, the younger brother, sneered. We've killed two high lords this week. I don't think we're going to dirty our hands with a slave. You killed my Uvac. That's different. Sorge said. You may not know this, but we sabers are charged with keeping order. A slave can't keep an Uvac. Filled with hate, Ori stepped forward, ready to charge, only to see Flen Luzo turn toward his Uvac. Traders told us you like to come here. He said, opening his stool bag. We're here to make a trade. He tossed two scrolls to her feet. Kneeling, Ori looked at the wax on the parchment. There was her mother's marking, a design known only to her and immediate members of her family. Such a thing was reserved for validating a final testament. Unfurling the scroll, she saw that, in a sense, this was. This says she plotted with Dernaz and the Reds to kill the Grand Lord. And the other says she plotted with Pal Lima and his people. Flynn said, grinning. She signed both confessions, as you see. You could have gotten anything under duress. Yes. Flynn said. Ori scanned the document. Kandra Kitai now pledged her eternal loyalty to Grand Lord Ven, who would keep her alive as her personal, very visible, slave. 
Then would Nell be naming three replacement High Lords of her own, Flynn said, effectively blocking any moves by what remained of her rival's camps. Ori could guess from the sound of Flynn's voice that the brothers might find themselves suddenly elevated, for their loyalty. As I said, we came for a trade. Your lightsaber, please. Ori threw the scrolls to the dirt. You'll have to take it. He simply crossed his arms. Your mother told us that you would cooperate. I'm sure you wouldn't want to be the cause of her suffering. She's suffering already. She took another step toward them. And then our sabers will come down here in force and raise this little farm. And that farmer boy of yours. He said, eyes glinting evilly. They already have orders to do so, if I don't bring back your lightsaber. Ori froze. Suddenly reminded, she leapt frantically toward the river. He would be floating home soon. Flynn spoke in a knowing voice. We don't care what a slave does, or who she does it with. But you're not a slave until we have that weapon. The brothers ignited their lightsabers in unison. So what's it going to be? Ori closed her eyes. She didn't deserve what had happened to her, but he didn't deserve any of it. And he was all she had. Pressing the button, she deactivated the lightsaber and threw it to the ground. Light call. Sorge Luzo said, deactivating his lightsaber and taking hers. Both brothers stepped back to their mounts and climbed aboard. Oh. Flynn said, reaching for something strapped to his Uvax harness. We did have a gift from the Grand Lord, to start your new career. He threw the long object, which landed at Ori's feet with a thump. It was a shovel. Its metal blade made it truly a treasure, she could see it was forged from one of the few bits of debris from Omen's landing. That material had been worked and reworked over the centuries, as Kesha's paucity of surface iron had become known. A final reward for her former life. Shovel in her hands, she heard the Lizos laughing as they soared away to the north. Ori looked around at what she had left. The hut. The barn. Mound after mound of the man's mud. And the trellises, home to the Dalsars that had brought her here to begin with. No. Anger boiling inside her, she lashed out, striking the frail structures with the shovel. One mighty swing tore the frame apart, sending the flowers crashing to the ground. The hijabo shoot wreckage exploded, blown to splinters by the force of her mind. Infuriated, she charged through the farm, hacking Jelfa's wobbly cart to pieces. So much anger, so little to destroy. Turning, she saw the symbol for her dispossession, the composting barn. Swinging, she smashed the door from its hinges and charged inside. Raging through the force, she yanked at the sorry tools on the walls, sending them flying in a whirlwind of hate. Striking something beneath the surface of the dung, the shovel ripped free from her hands, causing her to lose her footing in the muck. Calming as she got to her feet, Ori looked in amazement at the pile. There, beneath the stinking mess, was a soiled cloth covering protecting something large. Something metal. Recovering the shovel, she began to dig. He had felt terrible, leaving Ori with a job that would take her all day. But he had his own trap to check, here under the lush canopy. Jelf hadn't caught anything in months, but his best chances always seemed to coincide with the auroras. Approaching the secluded knoll, he found his treasure, hidden beneath the giant fronds. He breathed faster in anticipation. All through the recent days of turbulence and tranquility, he'd felt somehow that something was about to happen. This might be the day he'd been waiting for, after so much time. Jelf stopped. Something was happening, but it wasn't here. Looking through the foliage to the west, he had that gut feeling again. Something was happening, and it was happening now. He ran for the boat. Ori found the strange thing sitting beneath the manure-covered torp. There actually wasn't that much of the foul stuff piled over it, just enough to give the appearance that what lay beneath was something other than it was. And what it was, was big, easily the length of two uvac. A great metal knife, painted red and silver, with a strange black bubble sitting atop its rear. 
Patricians swept back, wing-like, in a chevron, each tipped with two long spears that reminded her of lightsabers. She'd forgotten the smell, now, breathing faster as she ran her hand across the surface of the metal mystery. It was cold and imperfect, with dents and burn marks all along its length. But the true surprise yet awaited her. Reaching the rounded section in back, she pressed her face against what seemed like black glass. Inside, tucked into an amazingly small space, she saw a chair. An engraved plate sat just behind the headrest, bearing characters looking similar to the ones she'd been taught by her mentors. Orek class tactical strike fighter. Republic Fleet Systems. Model X4A. Production 135C. Ori's eyes widened. She saw it for what it was. A way back in. All his life, Jelf Mayan had feared the Sith. The Great Sith War had concluded before he was born, but the devastation done to his homeworld of Taprawa was so complete that he had devoted his life to preventing their return. He had gone too far, alienating the conservative leaders who ran the Jedi Order. Expelled, he had sought to continue his vigil, working with an underground movement of Jedi Knights devoted to preventing the return of the Sith. For four years, he'd worked in the shadows of the galaxy, making sure the masters of evil were indeed a memory. Things had gone wrong again. On assignment in a remote region three years earlier, he'd learned of the collapse of the Jedi Covenant. Fearful of returning, he'd headed for the uncharted regions, sure that nothing could ever restore his name and place with the Order. On Kesh, he had found something that might, wrapped up in his worst nightmare come true. He'd been caught in one of Kesha's colossal meteor showers, crashing in the remote jungle as just one more falling star. Unable to raise help through Kesha's bizarre magnetic field, he'd ventured down toward the lights he'd seen on the horizon. The light of a civilization, steeped in darkness. Still meters from the bank, he leapt from the boat. Ori. Ori, I'm back. Are you? Jelf stopped when he saw the trellises, cut down. Taking in the damage, he dashed toward the barn. The door was open. There, exposed in the evening twilight, sat the damaged starfighter he painstakingly floated down from the jungle, a piece at a time. He found something else, beside it, a metal shovel, discarded. Ori? Stepping into the shadows of the barn, he saw the corpse of the Uvac, food for the small carrion birds. Behind the building, he found the traps he'd sent her to check, abandoned on the ground. She had been here, and gone. In front of the hut, he found other tracks wide Sith boots and more Uvac prints. Ori's smaller prints were here, too, heading past the hedge up the cart path that led to Tarv. Jelf reached inside his vest for the bundle he always carried on trips. Blue light flashed in his hand. He was a lone Jedi on an entire planet full of Sith. His existence threatened them, but their existence threatened everything. He had to stop her. No matter what. He dashed up the path into the darkness, 